Well, we're going to kick off um, our first Wednesday night class here at Edmond. I'm excited to do that with you guys. Um, most of you, I should uh, probably know uh, if, you, if you attend on Sunday mornings, but again, I'm the campus pastor here, and uh, it's a privilege uh, to be with you tonight. And I'm just before we jump into our study, I just want to kind of give you the context of what this fo- the format of this class will be and kind of what Wednesday nights will look like, and you can um, have a better understanding of how we're going to set this on going or set this up ongoing, and then kind of discern which classes you know fits what your interests uh, lie uh, these days. So, um, obviously, we're going to be doing a three-week series on the book of Habakkuk and taking a chapter each week. Uh, and so, uh, I, I love it that I see some of you brought your Bibles. That's perfect because the setting uh, for tonight and the next three weeks is exactly what we're going to do. It's going to be a Bible study in a large group setting, and so I want you to be looking uh, through the scriptures together, and we'll also have it on the screens, um, but for those of you that want to, uh, you know, page through it as we go, that may be a great setting for you to do as well. And then what we're going to do on Wednesday nights, um, as many of you know, if, if you've been around Crossings Edmond for a little bit, we, we do have some space constraints <laughs> already. Um, and so we really, as we planned uh, to launch, you know, Wednesday nights, we really had to get creative on what that structure looks like. Uh, our high school ministry, um, we wanted to give them the best opportunity for growth. Uh, they were already outgrowing uh, their down, this upstairs room on Wednesday nights in the early fall when we launched. And so we thought this could be a great pathway for them uh, to, uh, if, if you've ever been in youth ministry or have kids in high school ministry, they can do a little bit more in a larger room and, and, and all that good stuff. So we, we put them in the venue on Wednesday nights, and I'm excited about that. Um, I really believe in this generation and, and giving them a great roadway to develop in their faith in an environment that makes sense. So all that to say is we're up here, um, and, uh, and we've got a few different spaces. So we're going to, on Wednesday nights, we're going to have one large group study uh, going on, and then we'll have kind of some sub, uh, another sub-Bible study, another path. And for this first two months, the other path is centered, which I think you've heard me talk about on Sunday mornings. Week one, they're at OKC tonight, but 40 people registered for that. Uh, and we're excited about that. And so they'll be back here next week in two or three rooms doing small groups, going through the centered curriculum and small group experience. And then we will be together doing our large group study. So we'll conclude the end of January with Habakkuk. And then in January, we're going to do a relationship series uh, on love and respect. It's a book uh, that we're going to do a study on together. Um, and so what we're going to try to do I know this is probably not going to meet everyone's needs, but we're going to kind of rotate between uh, taking a book of the Bible and do a series there and then rotate and do a topical study and hitting some topics that I think are really important. Uh, I call it my personal, I call it my core four, things that are important to me when it comes to discipleship in the church. Um, It's marriage, parenting, finances, and the Bible. <laughs> and so, uh, obviously, we're going to take a book of the Bible and do our best to continue to grow our, our knowledge and our heart uh, in uh, that timeless truth. But then we'll take, a top, we'll take a break, do a topical study, and hopefully that engages different people in our community, in our church, that that topic may hit. So, um, relationships in February, and it's a DVD series um, from a great world-renowned author that's written some books and a psychologist, but from a Christian perspective. And you maybe even read the book, Love and Respect. It's been around for a long time. So, um, and we'll just kind of rotate. And then as our needs grow, because I get this question a lot, is what what does adult discipleship look like at Edmond Campus? As our needs grow and if we need to, you know, find other opportunities for classes, we've got this building every day of the week. So we may try, uh, we did our best to try to put everything on Wednesday nights for the convenience of our community uh, and childcare and other age groups. But it, we, we're not going to not do other classes on a Tuesday night or a, um, a Monday night. That will happen probably in the future as the, as the needs and uh, strategy gets a little bit more refined. Does that make sense? So I just want to set that up so you're wondering w- what that's about and, and what to expect in the future. So... Tonight, we kick off week uh, one of Habakkuk, and my, my heart and my desire um, is to do an inductive study of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and so whenever, and what I, I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but when, we do, when I do a personal Bible study, 
I use a little tool. You probably have uh, been um, aware of it before. If, uh, if you're a Christ follower and you've been in the church for a while, you may have been introduced to it along the way. It's called inductive Bible study. And so um, this is a tool I use in my own personal devotion um, on how I study Scripture. And the reason why, um, and I learned this in seminary and then I learned this in college along the way, uh, is when we're, when we're reading Scripture, we want to make sure that we don't start with application. That's a, a very natural tendency. Is like, well, I want to just immediately apply it to my life. That's important. We're going to do that. But we always want to start with observation and interpretation of the original context of who the author was, wh- when it was written, why it was written, uh, before we get to application in our own life. Because we can easily take a verse in the Bible anywhere and misplace its meaning in our own life. Trust me, I've done that before in my youth and as an adult, and I've been politely and respectfully corrected by other followers of Christ that are a little further in the journey. Like, did you realize what that really meant? Professors in college helping reguide that uh, in my own life. So I've been there, and through that experience over time, I, I, I found this little tool of inductive Bible study to be, help us lay the groundwork uh, to make sure we're applying the truth in an accurate way. Make sense? So here's a little tool. Uh, it may feel elementary to you, but I do think it's a great starting place. It's called, uh, again, inductive Bible study. Kind of four themes of when you're studying a book of the Bible, a sentence, a paragraph, whatever it may be, you start with observation. You're essentially asking the question. I apologize if the text is, is too small. I tried to make it as big as I could on the screen. But I always ask, what does it say? Who, what, where, why, and how uh, of, uh, of this book? the original author, the location, understand the the history, the context, and understand the context of the message in which it was written and why it was written. And I I don't know about you, but I'll take a journal, and then I'll have my Bible, and I'll I'll maybe even write these words, observation, interpretation. I'll write the scripture up top, and then I'll just write these little words down, and I'll do my best to answer these questions. And then before I ever get to the application, then I move to interpretation, what does it mean? What was the original meaning? What was the original application? What was the big idea? And then finally, as I kind of take the theme, the facts of what I understand, that could be through a life application Bible. Maybe you bought a, a commentary to understand um, some uh, you know, theologians' understanding of the original context. And you take all that information, and then you move to application. How does this apply to me? Is there a command to apply? Because there's definitely commands in the Bible. Is there a person to model some characteristics that apply to my life? And is there a promise to remember? So, and then I end with a simple prayer in my, in my studies. And God, help me to live this, this principle. If there is something timeless for me to, to um, take from that, help me to live that out in my life. So, as we filter this in mind, as we unpack this book, we will do our best to interpret its original meaning, share our observations, my observations of how I study this, and then close with application and prayer. You know, I, another way of even looking at this part before we dive into the, the, the nuts and bolts is in seminary, I learned studying scripture is always important and ask another set of questions too. Is the truth limited for all people at all times and all places or for limited audience and for a specific person at a specific time? Does that make sense? Is this message just for a specific person? Like you, you could take the, you know, um, the Torah, the original first five books of the Bible, and you look at the 613 laws that were written. That was written to a specific audience for a specific time. Um, and, and there were specific rules in which they were supposed to live to abide by God. It does not necessarily, um, when it comes to head covering or certain ways that you pos- position yourself, you know, um, in the temple was meant for a specific audience for a specific time um, versus a principle in a truth that was meant for all times, for all people. And so as we look at the book of Habakkuk, we're going to do our best to understand the history and understand there actually is a principle for all times for us to learn from this amazing, I really believe, amazing conversation between God and the book and the prophet Habakkuk, going back and forth with Habakkuk's complaint to God about the world in which he lived, and then God replies twice. Uh, And it's a really fascinating conversation. So um, as for us to continue to understand the history 
and the context, I want to start with a video uh, that paints this uh, in a beautiful way, the history and the background, and then I'm going to take it a little further, and we're going to take it section by section, and I'm going to share my observations, and then eventually we'll move uh, to some application. So let's move along and check out this video that gives us a little picture of the history. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt, they're more violent, they've deified their own military power, they treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice and so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now, the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. 
But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires, go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum, and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. I feel like we could just go home now. I think I just gave you uh, all three chapters, a really great synopsis. It's like cheating and getting the, the cliff notes right there. But I thought I couldn't uh, pass up showing you that. I'm a, just a, versus hearing someone teach. I think it's always good to have videos that can illustrate it. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. So let me just continue to take this a little further um, as that video did. Have you ever looked at planet Earth from Google Maps? Uh, before, it's kind of fun. You get on Google Maps and kind of Google where, where you live, and then it kind of zooms in. It's beautiful. The world looks beautiful from a distance on Google Maps and from the outside. But when you zoom in, you begin to see the realities of the world when you zoom in. You start seeing the details. You sometimes see the imperfections. The reality for us who live on planet Earth is that we know there's turmoil. We know there's imperfections. We know there's tragedies. We know there's trauma in our world. We even know there's terrorism around the world, pollution, and all this could easily cascade a dark shadow over our world, especially in the context of studying this book of Habakkuk. And he's struggling as a prophet with all the injustice around him. To the point, it leads him to a burden and, and a complaint against God. He begins to ask all these questions. Why all of the injustice? Why doesn't God do something? There's so much oppression. Why? 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 And all these questions are an age-old question that many people before us for centuries before Christ, as we know, have been asking these questions. Even philosophers have been asking the why question of the injustices in our world. All of these questions sets up the study of Habakkuk beautifully, in my opinion. It's a bunch of why questions, which ultimately leads the prophet to the who. God is in control. And we kind of get a little teaser of that from chapter 3. So each week we're going to dive in to uh, this theme. In week 1, we're going to look at, God, do you really care what's going around in the world, going around in the world? And we'll kind of zero in on chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and we'll even get into all the way up to verse 17 tonight. But then next week, we'll continue um, a little bit of, of chapter 1, but all chapter 2. God, what are you doing? 
uh, and we'll begin to see Habakkuk, uh, after he lodges his second complaint at the end of chapter one, God replies, gives him a, a, an answer. And um, I'm excited uh, next week, Vance Holder. Uh, Vance, are you here? Raise your hand. He's going to be teaching next week. He's um, a part of our faith community here at Crossings Edmond. His wife's on staff with us, and he teaches at Crossings School. And I'm excited to do that, um, have him be here and teach week two uh, for us. And then we'll conclude with chapter three, like I said earlier on. God, what should I do now? Now that I've come to grips with the reality of the injustice of the world, I hear your reply. It's my, how do I come to grips with this in my own life, in my own world? So here's a quick map of the context of this conversation. This kind of falls in the 7th century, and this is also uh, modern-day Iraq in the current, uh, our current context, but you can kind of see um, where uh, all this is taking place. So we're going to be talking about the community of Babylon, which you can kind of see to the right of the map, um, and we're going to see how God uses this, um, I would say, evil um, community to rise up uh, and, and overtake a bunch of nations and how God uses this, um, this community, uh, this nation to overtake Judah uh, and other communities. So just kind of a frame of reference. It's kind of this conversation between God um, you know, and Habakkuk struggling with these nations at war with each other. And then how God uses kind of a, a, another country, which I'll, it's a little teaser, to bring uh, his justice about uh, based on Habakkuk's complaint. So let's dive in. If you've got your Bible or if you've got your Bible app or whatever you use, and um, you probably want to pull that open. It'll also be on the, the side screens. At least parts of the verses we'll be kind of anchoring in on. Um, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1. Um, tonight, and, and I'll walk you through what we're going to be um, looking at. So it kind of gave you the, the history there, and these nations uh, are at war with each other, and uh, the prophet Habakkuk is, is frustrated with the injustice all around him. Matter of fact, um, it, there was an international crisis. Judah is struggling with national corruption, and so he is overwhelmed. It feels like a weight that needs to be lifted, and he lodges his first complaint to God which um, we've got here on the screen, and here's what it says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Powerful question. <laughs> or cry out to you violence, but you do not save, you do nothing. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction, violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. Continuation of uh, verse 4. The wicked hymn in righteousness, so that justice is perverted. See, as we read this first complaint, here's an interesting observation of the scripture. The, book, the prophet Habakkuk lived in the tension of two kings. Um, there was a godly king named King Josiah, and, and he, there was almost like a revival happening where God um, was doing a work in that community, and they were following after the Torah. They were actually following after God's law. But towards the end of his reign, as he died, uh, his kingship, if you were, passed on to his son. And then his son died after being three months into his reign, being overshadowed in, uh, by Egypt. And then uh, by Pharaoh, and then we began to see that his brother gets, uh, and uh, sometimes it's fun to try to pronounce Bible names, isn't it? Jeho Jehoiakim. I never can never pronounce, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I'm like, Jehoiakim? Anyone else know how to pronounce that better than I know how? Uh, sometimes you have to look these things up and go, uh, how do you pronounce that correctly? But the point is, uh, this king uh, was Josiah's son, second son, and he was an evil king. Evil king. The scripture says, matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 36, 5, he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Man, he continues to see in Jeremiah 22, 18, and 19, giving a description of this evil king. Imagine this being on your tombstone, all right? They will not mourn for him, Alas, my brother, alas, my sister, 
They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have a burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Pretty much trash. You do not have any worth. Imagine that being said of you when you die. Oh, man, man, this, let's celebrate. Um, better, the world is better without you here. And I just kind of like laughed out loud. It would maybe not, be, it maybe not be funny, but man, he had a burial of a donkey. I mean, golly, that is some pretty descriptive language of um, Jeremiah. This was not a good king. And the, the reason why I kind of you know, zoom in on this, uh, the, emphasis, the emphasis and observation of this evil king, because it sets the tone of Habakkuk's struggle with the injustices of his world that he lived in. Because he lived in the tension, the tension at one point under a godly king, things were going well in the nation, completely different direction. And he begins to feel like this is a burden, that Judah is rebelling against God. Nations are at war with each other from a distance. It's an international crisis. It's a national crisis. Uh, maybe we can relate uh, in our world today a little bit. This sets the stage for the entire conversation between God and Habakkuk, complaining about the injustice all around him. So what else do we know about Habakkuk? A prophet's job was to proclaim God's word. God used prophets to help proclaim what God wanted for humanity. Prophets typically had power, but not position. And there's a difference. A prophet had power, the power of God to deliver a message, but didn't necessarily have society's position of authority. This, a great example of this is Jesus. He had power, but he did not have position. He came into this world, yes, as, but not an earthly king in which the world looked at him. He had power, but not position. And this was probably true of most prophets. They had power, but not position in which they would proclaim a message. Typically, you see prophets with three responsibilities in the Old Testament. Analyzing the shape of evil in the society, kind of look at the landscape and recognize the reality of the world, bring attention to it, proclaim God's message for the present and sometimes for the future. And lastly, their job was to fact about Habakkuk. Is derived from the Hebrew verb embrace. His name probably means he who embraces or he who clings. It's appropriate name for both the prophet and the book, in my opinion, because Habakkuk comes to this firm faith through grappling with questions with God. He's going back and forth, back and forth, and he finally comes to grips with the reality, and he embraces uh, the truth that God had to speak about his own complaint about the he, Again, he was very upset with his surroundings, uh, how people are behaving. Uh, he was so upset with how people and evil was just taking um, root in the world. The fruition turns into a complaint. God, why are you allowing injustice and evil? God, why do you seem to delay your judgment? We see this uh, in verses 4 and 5 here. Uh, verse 5, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or you cry out violence, but you do not bring about that justice. And so what we began to see is, by the way, you see this type of crying and commissioning and throughout the Bible. Look at the book of Job. It's a big book of complaints, but in the context of a prayer, <laughs> He's, he's, he's complaining, God, man, there's all this evil happening around me, but he says it and writes it in, in, a, in a form of a prayer. You, you see David, all through the Psalms, writing beautifully, poetically, his concerns of the world. Like, look at uh, Psalms 13, 1 through 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Uh, or how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Similar um, theme that Habakkuk is saying you see in the Psalms. Before we go further into this dialogue, ask another question about his question. Kind of take a, a little detour just for one second. It's, at least, again, this is my observation uh, when I was doing my personal study. He's asking, why are you in allowing injustice? But my question is, what is justice? What kind of justice is Habakkuk wanting 
for all the uh, evil that's happening around him. So I want to take a moment to dive into what is justice, and then we'll kind of continue on in this dialogue. You see in Isaiah uh, 61, 8, and we're going to look at three different passages just briefly that talks about the importance of justice. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. You see Psalms 37, 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faith, and the offspring of the wicked will perish. We begin to see this language throughout uh, the Old Testament about the importance of God delivering justice. You see in Psalms 99:4, the king is mighty, he loves justice. You have established equity in Jacob. You have done what is just and right. So, the question continues. Um, what is justice? A famous verse in Micah 6, 8 begins, Justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. In the Greek times, they may have viewed justice like a scale that's like human hands. And, and they're beginning to, to weigh uh, good versus evil and, and what kind of justice you're going to um, be uh, given based on your iniquity. Amos 5, 24 paints a different picture of justice. Not a scale, but something different. Amos 5, 24 says, But let justice roll on your failing stream. See, God's justice is like a river rolling and pointing to the cross where Jesus died for all of our sins. Jesus became, think about this, the ultimate victim of injustice. He was the ultimate victim of injustice in our world. But it was so that the world might know him. He can use, God can use any situation to bring about God's justice in the world, reminding us that God's justice will triumph. It will be judged and forgiven by the power of the cross and through Jesus' resurrection. John Ortberg, a pastor in California, says it this way, and a, and a wonderful uh, author as well, says justice means recognizing, making sure it's on the screens there, uh, recognizing and honoring the excellence of God's creation. That is everything in the world. The greatest thing that God honors in all of this world is human beings. Biblical justice is not a political thing, but it's a Bible thing. See, essentially, God in his timing and way will bring ultimate kingdom justice for all of humanity. And this is taking us back to the conversation of Habakkuk. It may not be delivered justice in the way that Habakkuk desired or the timing in which he hoped it would happen, but it will happen for all of humanity and it which we think it should happen. And we began to see this in verse 4. But before I dive there, here's a few more thoughts about justice. He wants us to bring practical justice to our unjust world in our slice of the pie. He's influenced you to be a Christ follower in your unique context. And when you see injustice, we have a responsibility as Christ followers to engage, speak up for those that can't speak for themselves. That's just going to the injustice Habakkuk is struggling with and the justice he desires from God in a certain way. So we dive into verse 4, and we began to see this dialogue taking place even further. Therefore, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible is paralyzed. Take a moment to think about that. The, the law was paralyzed, meaning it was frozen. It was losing its effectiveness in how it was affecting the hearts of God's people because in their ability to receive um, and live out the law. And this is what Habakkuk is saying. It's, the Torah is paralyzed. Injustice just seems to never prevail. The wicked him to the righteous, so the justice is perverted. See, Habakkuk tells God that his law has lost its effectiveness in its culture, and people are just rebelling. They're worshiping false idols. They're killing. They're doing unnecessary evil things to each other. And Israel has turned away. And again, we began to see Habakkuk's um, complaint get answered. 
by God. That doesn't happen all the time in the Bible. And so this is what makes this book so cool, is that God actually replies and begins to say, well, let me share my perspective from your complaint. And so we begin to see verses 5 and 6. Um, and, and here's what he says. This is what God says. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your day were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the ruthless and impoptuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Babylonian community, see, is rising in power and strength, which is Israel's neighbor. And these people were, according to scripture, were literally brutal. They were horrible and maybe even say the worst of the worst in regards to their evil acts. So Habakkuk is struggling here. He's like, yeah, my community, things are not going well. But then across the, the, another nation, this other um, nation, Babylon, they're worse than his community. And God is simply saying, I'm going to use this other community that's far worse in their rebellion to bring about justice to your national crisis. Are you following along? And so we began to see Habakkuk get frustrated with God's response. <laughs> you ever been there? Answering my prayers the way I, uh, I'm praying. I, I'm witnessing you know, things that are happening internationally in our world. I'm, I'm fervently praying for our, my nation, my president. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got family crisis going on. God, where are you? Why are you allowing this happen? So we began to maybe relate personally to Habakkuk of the struggles that you are facing, you observe in our nation and around the world. And God's reply is a little bit different uh, than he, you may have a different one, uh, of verses five and six, God uh, bringing Babylon to judge and bring justice. So here's kind of three observations. Make sure I got it here. Yeah. First one is be utterly astounded. <laughs> and so he's like, I'm about to do something uh, to bring about justice that maybe you would not expect. Uh, and so here's, here's what he says. He's, God tells the troubled prophet, don't worry about it. I've got this handled. Uh, look at the surrounding nations and, of sinful Judah. So that's observation one, is God saying, be utterly astounded because I'm about to use an instrument of another nation to bring about justice. Part two, my second observation of God's reply, is I will do a work in your day which you would not believe. See, we understand the idea of something too good to be true, but that isn't what God is talking about here. He's not giving an inspirational moment and saying, I'm about to do a work in your day that's interpreting scripture, and scripture rightly. I remember in college uh, doing a Bible study and a few of us misinterpreting this verse where we thought it was more of an inspirational, someone like would quote uh, Habakkuk, let me see if I can find it, like I think it was just one verse five. I will do a work in your day which you would not believe and we interpreted as college students as like a, a, a spiritual revival. You won't believe what God will do. Yes, it's a future promise. Well, this isn't a promise. This is about justice of evil. God using a evil Habakkuk's unjust world around him. It's not an inspirational comment. I will do something in your day to see a revival. It's I'm about to bring down the hammer with justice in a way that you never imagined. So this is that's a great example of misinterpreting that. It's not an inspirational comment. It's a judgment that's about to come from God to the people of Judah. That's my second observation. Third observation uh, is I'm rising up the Chaldeans, which is Babylon, um, and eventually to come against Judah. And this will, they'll be sent by God, but they won't be commanded by God. God will actually allow them uh, to uh, be succumbed to their sinful desire to the point they naturally want to conquer Judah and that God will just allow their sinful desires to overtake the next nation because that's the international crisis that he was observing. They're, man, they were conquering all these nations, and God was about to let them conquer Judah as well, which is where we get uh, the Babylonian captivity where you see in Scripture. And that we're about to be on the, um, uh, you know, uh, the context of that happening and rolling out. And so 
uh, as that happens, that's my third observation, he uses uh, the Babylonian community uh, and our nation, excuse me, to bring about justice in his, this unjust world. Here's a continuation of God's answer, verses 7 through 11, to give description how bad these people are. Uh, and it's just good uh, to um, come to grips with God's reply. See, this is what he says. They are feared, dreadful people. They are a law to themselves, promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Even their horses are evil. Um, Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. There's so many of them. They mock kings and scoff rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities that are being built by ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on to the next people, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Here's a few more observations about the 7 through 11. They are terrible and dreadful people. Habakkuk, and the Lord lets him know that the judgment will indeed come, and when it comes through Babylon, it will be terrible yet dreadful. Number two, they commit offense, ascribing this power to their God. Matter of fact, when you begin to read the description of 7 through 11, they're actually using their, they're actually giving praise to their own instruments, their weapons. They're saying, glory to these weapons um, that we could kill. They're making uh, false idols. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping their, their weapons. This is what um, God's reply is saying here, is they're um, rising uh, and giving power to their own gods, and, which was attributing it to themselves and their own weapons. They were just evil people. And then we began to see that the Lord knew this would happen ever before it occurred. And then we're going to anchor in in verse 12. Um, I kind of already shared my observations there. Or actually, let me dive in here. So commit offense, ascribing their power to their own God, their strength, their speed, their fierceness of the army. So this was just a community that was going to bring havoc to Judea. And so we see Habakkuk struggling in verse 12 through 17. I'm not going to read this one, but here is the question that he is asking. Why do it this way, God? Really? You're going to use this evil community to punish my, this national community that I'm, uh, we've seen God do a work in. Yes, they've rebelled, but why would you use an, a, an evil community that's a little bit more, a little worse to bring about your justice? And so I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger because next week Vance is going to take it from here to to see um, how God's reply is uh, to his second complaint. But here, let's move into application. So we did our best with interpretation, the observation of the original context, kind of seeing that dialogue go back and forth between God and Habakkuk. You understand how horrible uh, the nation was and why he was struggling but let's move into some application, and we'll, we'll close these last um, part of our class with this um, application part. So to this question, why does God allow us to see evil in our world? Easy one to answer, and, I, and I'm not going to try to answer it in a way that maybe you, you may think I will, but let me just give you a few observations around that question. Justice is bent for God's purpose. Um, and number two, God hears and acts, but he doesn't always hear and act in the way which we receive it. Um, I mean, we see this type of dialogue throughout the Bible. I kind of gave you reference to Job and his struggle of affliction that happened to him. You see David struggling, but we don't always get God's answer in the time we want it, but he does hear and he does act, but it's in his timing. Third, even evil according to the book of Habakkuk, will be bent to serve God's will. will. Think about that. Even evil will be bent to serve God's will. And we see a few other verses give us uh, perspective on that. Genesis 6-5, earth had become, and that every 
inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overstakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts when they live, and afterward they join the dead. See, the scripture is giving light to the, the humanity's wickedness and sinfulness, is that we have to um, wrestle with the tension that when we see evil and justice, we need to have a few different reactions around our world, or even pain and, um, pain and suffering. One is that hopefully it can draw us closer to God when we see, especially when we personally experience pain and suffering. That's not an easy um, application to go to first, is God, I want to draw closer to you whenever I'm experiencing pain or suffering or I observe um, evil in the world. Uh, chapter 3, Habakkuk going to that place of being drawn closer to God um, and, and coming to grips with his justice and his timing. But I think part two, it's important to always do an internal audit. Um, when we observe evil and suffer and uh, injustice in our world, it's easy to go and go, people are bad and I'm good. But that's not the message, you know, uh, that we need to heed as Christians. We, we recognize the world is evil, but yet we, we, we contribute to that in, because we're all uh, sinful people. It's because of our relationship with Christ that he bridges that gap so that we could have grace, we could have freedom. And so before we go to, it's just all messed up in the world. It's all evil around me, or there's so much pain and suffering to recognize that when you do an internal audit, and it's good to have a checkpoint, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can easily just go through the motions of Christianity and just take a moment to realize I'm imperfect. I've got to realize that I've, you know, I've sinful and I've fallen short of the glory of God, but he restores me. And it's like the Psalms say, search me, O God. Where do you find the, you know, the imperfection in my own heart? So that's another application. Before we go outward, the world is bad. God, where is the wrongdoing in my own heart before I start shooting arrows at the world? Although it doesn't negate evil happening in the world, the treasure within us and we got to come to the grips that we have a relationship with Christ, uh, with Christ that restores us. But always do that internal audit. Uh, and then as we continue, I want to um, continue to share with you a few other um, application and then some questions to ponder as we think about chapter 1 and concluding chapter 1. Um, Tim Keller has a great book on pain and suffering. If you're ever in injustice in the world, if you're interested, that's a good one to read. Come to grips with the injustices and pain and suffering in our world. I thought it was really good, and then I'm going to leave you with some questions to ponder. Here's, but we'll start with Tim Keller. We must recognize, and this is, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't put this last 10, 10 thoughts on the, of the screen, but let me just read them to you. We must recognize the different types of suffering, number one. He's just saying, you know, uh, there's different types of suffering. There's, there's death, and that's a type of suffering. There's injustice, and maybe that happens with, with a school shooting. That's a type of suffering. Um, there's evil, evil injustice around the world. There's different types of suffering in the world, and we need to recognize those sufferings and how people handle it. Two, we must recognize your own temperament compared to others on how you handle the injustices and pain and suffering in our world. He's, you know, some people get immediately angry with injustice or pain and suffering. Some people bottle it up. And he said, you need to be careful to understand your own temperament or evil in our world. Three, there's weeping, and that's okay. It's, it's okay to cry for the world. It's okay to lodge your complaint to God and say, Lord, how long, oh Lord, will this happen? Where is your justice crying for the injustices of our world, maybe ones that you're suffering and, and going through personally. It's okay to engage with your emotions. Four, there's trusting when we don't understand. 
There's trust answers from God that we, we hope that we could receive, and I've said that over and over again, but we've got to trust even when it doesn't make sense. Last, or not lastly, number five, we pray. Let, let's see this conversation, this dialogue going back and forth between the uh, prophet Habakkuk and God. Like, let's commune with God in our relationship throughout the world in the context in which you live. Talk to God about what's going on in your life about the injustices in the world. Pray, know that your prayers are being listened to. Six, we must be disciplined in our thinking. Meditate on the truth that you're facing and how God is with you and all that he's already done in your life. Because sometimes when you're the thick of pain, suffering, or injustice, it's easy to forget about what he's done already in your life, and, you're, and you wonder, God, where are you? But then if you could step out of yourself for a moment, and sometimes I'll journal um, and write you know, how God's answered my prayers. When I'm having a moment of questioning God, I'll look back and go, oh, wow, he answered my prayers. And that's what Tim Keller is saying here, is no, even when you're going through the thick of pain and suffering, or observing injustice is to remember that God is with us. Eight, we must reorder our love of God and other people while we go through this. He's simply saying just like let this process and love people more. Nine, we should not shrink back from community when we are experiencing pain, suffering, or watching injustices. We should actually rally together as Christ followers, support each other, lift each other up, walk with each other in community. And lastly, we must grow in the skill of receiving and giving grace like Christ has done for us. Now it's a lot to take in, and here's three questions. I'm going to leave this up, and I'm going to pray. Questions I was thinking as I was doing this chapter one is, are you in a posture to hear God's reply in your own life? Even if it's not the answer you want to hear, because we clearly see Habakkuk struggling with God's reply on how he's handling justice of the nation that he's observing. Number two, where in your heart, and for me I was asking, where in my heart do I need to find repentance? Because that's kind of the comment I made earlier is don't start with God. The world is bad, and be willing to show humility and say, I'm not perfect, Lord. Yes, I'm struggling with what's going on in the world, but is there any wrongdoing in me? Is there something that I need to address so that I could continue to stay Christ-centered um, in my own life? And then lastly, where is injustice in my community that I could be praying for justice to arrive? Just because it's, injustice is happening doesn't mean you don't Pray for justice to happen. Fostering kids that are in need. These are kind of bigger, larger ones. Caring for prisoners in our community. Um, what is the injustice that you're seeing in your world that you need to be praying for? Like Habakkuk did, although it was in the form of a complaint. What is your prayer to God? And how is he calling you to get engaged with the injustices in your world? I'm going to close in prayer. And, uh, and we will I'll, we'll linger around uh, if you have questions. And again, we'll kick off next week with chapter 2. And then we'll conclude with chapter 3 and how, God, how Habakkuk uh, really wrestles with God's last reply. But let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful community called Crossings Edmund. God, thank you for using your word and this book of Habakkuk and this conversation between you and this prophet, Lord. And Lord, help us come to grips with the, the realities of the injustices in our world. Help us to go to you with our concerns and our worries, knowing that you will bring about justice uh, in your timing. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for this community. We pray this in your powerful name of Jesus. Amen.